Throughout the extensive landscape of our nation's capital stands massive architectural achievements. From the Washington Monument to the World War II Memorial, to the grand statue of Martin Luther King, to the sprawling White House, to the pillars of justice at the steps of the Supreme Court, to the expansive rotunda at the Capitol building. Washington, D.C. is meant to communicate to the world the power, the greatness, and the glory of the United States of America. In each of its aspects and parts, it is meant to communicate an aspect of American life, some part of our American story, and to tell the world around us that we are in for a fight. From the massive rotunda in the center of the city, it is meant to communicate to the American people that the president isn't in charge, but that the people are in charge through their representative democracy. And it's so true that architects seek to communicate through their structures, through their buildings, some aspect of their customers. And just as our capital here in the United States of America seeks to communicate to the world and to us our greatness, our glory, our power, so the temple in Jerusalem in Jesus' day sought to communicate to the world around it of, his, of its glory and its power. This temple had begun construction many decades before Jesus and his ministry. It was a wonder of the ancient world. Its walls were over a mile long. Its structure filled with thousands of stones, many meters long, weighing in at hundreds of tons. Even today, we can see a part of the substructure of this great and glorious temple at the Wailing Wall. That was merely the foundation of the wall. Imagine how great the wall was. This temple was sprawling. It was filled with beautiful ornamentation, gold and castings. It was the height of human innovation there in the Middle East. It was the crowning jewel of the Jewish people and it told the world around it that God was great and was to be worshipped. But however glorious it was, and however great it made the people feel, however much when they walked into it, they got an overwhelming sense of God's power and greatness and began to fill their chest with the air in which it occupied. Jesus in a moment, almost... In a blink, undermines every bit of that pomp and every bit of that circumstance as he declares that not one stone will be left upon another. And what Jesus does in foretelling the destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem is to give his disciples and to us a foretaste 
of what awaits this world when God comes in judgment. Our text this morning is going to serve as a reminder to each of us of the future reality for all those who reject Jesus as King. Just as God destroyed that temple and those people because they had willfully rejected His Son as King, so you and I await a similar fate if we reject Jesus as King. Now over the last several weeks, we've encountered the rejection by the religious leaders of Jesus as King. They've said no to Jesus. We don't want you to be King. We don't like the kind of kingdom that you're building. In fact, we're going to continue to have our own relationship with Rome, and we don't want any part of your kingdom. You are not the kind of king that we had hoped for. And therefore, we learned that they have resolved to put Jesus to death. He had become a nuisance. He had become a problem, and problems have to be dealt with. But even in the midst of their threats, Jesus continued to publicly teach and to preach and to warn of the impending judgment of God upon the people. And he reminded his disciples and taught them not only of his imminent death, but of his future return. We're in the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry, the final days. We're told in the text today that Jesus would spend his days in the temple and his nights on the Mount of Olives teaching his disciples. He was about to transform human history as we know it. And he needed to get them ready for what was about to come. And with that in mind, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 21 as we consider what is known as the Olivet Discourse. Luke chapter 21 We're going to consider today verses 5 through 38. For some of you, this might be your favorite section in Luke's gospel because it deals with end times. For some of you, you love to talk about end times. You like like it when preachers preach on end times. Well, hopefully, we leave today satisfied in what we hear through God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. And while some were speaking of the temple how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. He said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked Him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And He said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I'm he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be afraid. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all of this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, 
And you'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart. Let those who are out in the country, don't let them enter it. For these, day, these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be a great distress upon the earth and wrath against this, this people. It will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun, moon, and stars, and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and they will see the Son of Man coming in cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple. But at night he, would, he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Well, friends, this one passage beginning in verse 5 all the way through 38 is one discourse. Again, in Matthew's gospel it's often labeled the Olivet Discourse uh, because Jesus is delivering it there on the Mount of Olivet or the Mount of Olives, not to be confused. It's the same place, just two different names. Jesus is de de delivering an address to his disciples and teaching an overarching point about the second coming of Christ. And the point of this passage, and what will hopefully be the point of our time this morning, Christians must be prepared for the imminent return of our Lord Jesus Christ. We must be prepared for the imminent return of our Lord Jesus Christ by remaining watchful over our souls while calling sinners to trust in the gospel. We have a responsibility as Christians as we await the return of Christ 
to be watchful and to be in that watchfulness telling others of the imminent danger that comes. In short, Jesus' main idea that he's pressing his disciples is that our lives should be marked by the reality that Jesus could return imminently, immediately. There, There is nothing unfolding in human history that has to take place before Jesus comes again. That he will come, as we heard from Peter, like a thief. And so the purpose of our time this morning is to prepare for the imminent return of Christ. To prepare for the reality that Jesus could come today. And what are we to give ourselves between Jesus leaving, His ascension, and His return? What is it that the church is to be about? And Jesus, in this text, I think, identifies two things. So there are two activities that we are to give ourselves to. Number one, gospel proclamation. Gospel proclamation. Jesus, uh, in verses 5 through the end of verse 24, is making an argument that his disciples were to prepare others for the imminent destruction of Jerusalem. They were to proclaim the gospel and therefore prepare for this. And this serves as a type of what is to come ultimately at the second coming of Christ. Therefore, we are to be about gospel proclamation as we await Christ's return. And number two, we are to guard against complacency. Gospel proclamation and guard against complacency. It has been 2,000 years since Jesus uttered these words. And the temptation for us as Christians and as a church is to grow complacent. Oh, I don't know if he's coming back. We heard it in 2 Peter 3. There were even those in the early church that were saying, Jesus isn't coming again. It's been too long. He's delayed. He must be busy. He's not coming back. But rather, our lives are to be marked by the reality that Jesus is coming again, and therefore we must guard against complacency. We must not grow complacent. So if you take notes this morning, we're going to consider first gospel proclamation. As the disciples are admiring the beauty of the temple, Jesus uses this as an opportunity to teach and to reveal concerning the future. He tells them that there will not be one stone upon another. He is predicting or foretelling, he's prophesying that one day there's coming a day when this temple will be destroyed and it will be no more. Now clearly in this final week of Jesus' life, it's going to make sense in hindsight why this temple is going to be obsolete. Jesus on the cross of Calvary is going to make the whole sacrificial system obsolete and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is not going to be God present with His people through one place, but throughout the world through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus here is confronted by His disciples. Notice they don't question it. Notice they're not like, Jesus, have you lost your mind? Have you been you know, getting into the Passover wine a little early, Jesus? Um, what do you mean? This joint took decades to build, almost a hundred years to construct. What do you mean that it's going to be tore down? Notice they don't question. Notice what they say there in verse 7. Teacher, when will these things be? They don't ask how. 
They don't, know, they don't say, well, what's that going to look like? They say, well, what are the signs? How will we know? They understand that this will be so cataclysmic, this will be so big, so massive, because of the sheer size of it, that this is going to, if you will, have ripples around the world. This is going to be like dropping an atomic bomb on the Middle East. They know that this is going to transform cultures. When will these things happen, Jesus? How can we be ready for these things? And Jesus immediately warns them that when these things come, there will be those that seek to lead astray. And there were those who sought to lead people astray in the months and years leading up to 70 A.D., when the temple was destroyed. Furthermore, Jesus warns of rumors about wars and tumults. But notice here, verse 9 is the key. But when you hear these things, don't go after them, right? Don't run after these things. Don't be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Jesus is saying that this is, is a type of what the end will look like. This isn't, this isn't the end. This isn't my second coming. This is merely a foretaste, an appetizer of what awaits this world for rejecting me as king. He goes on then in verses 10 through 19, warning his disciples that they will experience war and they will experience persecution. He warns them in the, in the days leading up to the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem, there will be political and social upheaval. In fact, some of them will even be arrested. Notice what he says here in verses 12 through 19 as he warns them of this tremendous persecution. Verse 12, that you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. So not being persecuted for persecution's sake because they live in a fallen world. No, he's promising that, that they will be persecuted by these people, by these governors, because of his name. Notice here, verse 13 is the key. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. God will use their suffering to be the canvas in which the gospel is proclaimed. Jesus is saying, listen, all of these horrors, all of these terrors, all of this suffering, all the sorrow that is about to be brought upon these people will give you an opportunity to make much of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And friend, isn't that true of your own experience? Some of you were babies or infants when 9-11 happened, but many of us in this room can remember vividly where you were, what you were doing at that moment when the United States of America was attacked. Even now, you, you just immediately, your mind was carried to where you were and what you were doing. Why? Because it was so traumatic. It was so affecting to your, your mind and your psyche. And you remember those days that followed. People began to talk about God differently than they had before. Maybe you even came to faith in Christ during the season that followed that as we thought about war and we thought about all the horrors that followed through that as we experienced them as a people. Jesus is saying that all of this war and persecution will afford the opportunity for the gospel to be made big. He is preparing them for a future. 
And notice he tells them not to prepare a response, but to trust that his spirit will give them the words to speak when they proclaim. And brothers and sisters, this is a wonderful testimony, is that Luke has a part two to this gospel. Uh, Part two is the Acts of the Apostles. It's the book of Acts in your Bible. And this second volume reports all that, that Jesus foretells. Well, it comes true. They are persecuted. They are arrested. They do stand before governors and testify about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was right. They would face suffering. And so Christians have faced suffering for 2,000 years as we have sought to proclaim Christ even among the greatest kings of this world. But then Jesus, in verses 20 through 24, shifts back from, from his conversation about persecution to the destruction of Jerusalem. Remember back in, earlier in, in chapter 20, as Jesus, well, chapter 19 and into 20, when Jesus arrived into Jerusalem, what did he do? As people are celebrating and throwing a big party and streamers are flying and everybody's celebrating that the king has come, Jesus quietly goes off by himself and weeps. He weeps over the city of Jerusalem because he knows in a matter of years that this place will be a desolation. A desolation. And what he depicts here in verses 20 through 24 is exactly what happened. Luke is not writing from the vantage point. He's writing many years before 70 AD, probably in the early 60s. And he's reporting what Jesus said would happen, and it did happen. This is exactly what happened. Titus, who would become the emperor over the Roman Empire, surrounded the city with the armies of of Rome. And as Jesus warned, don't go to the city and think you're going to be protected. He said, get out of the city, get out of the city. And people began to starve. And people began to die. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, reports about all of the horrors and the cries where where people outside of the city could hear the cries of the children and the mothers who were starving. God was judging His people because they rejected His Son as King. Jesus doesn't report these things in celebration, but in sobriety. And he concludes there in verse 24 with the key verse. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Jesus here is foretelling a time when this is going to end. Their mission remained the same. They were to be about gospel proclamation They were to call sinners to salvation, to warn of the judgment that is to come. And that is much of what the apostles' ministry was in Jerusalem, in Solomon's portico, and throughout the the Roman world as they proclaimed Christ and Him crucified. This passage this morning reminds us that God is sovereign over the nations. And that because God sovereignly rules over human history, we can boldly and broadly proclaim His gospel without fear and intimidation. And this is what He did to prepare these apostles. 
They're going to lock you up. You're going to hear of horrible stories, but keep pressing on. Proclaim my good news. Though they reject me, keep preaching to them. Though they hate me, keep preaching to them. Friend, there are two things this passage promises us. Number one, future suffering. And number two, future triumph. We will suffer for following after Christ. Friend, this world is not, will not warm up to Jesus. You can see it play out through national media every single day that this society, the American culture, is, is on a fast little train to utter destruction. And this world will continue to hate us when we take stances on biblical truth, whether it be biblical morality, whether it be biblical stances on what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow after Christ, what it means to even be human. This morning, I wonder what is it that you are afraid of? Is it wars? Is it trials? Is it tribulation? Is it the president and who the next president might be? Are your fears perhaps more subtle? Your health, your finances, your neighborhood, your family? We must garner encouragement from the truth that this passage presents that the Lord is sovereign over human history, even your history. Jesus sovereignly predicts the future because he's in control of the future. How could he know all of these details? decades earlier, because he was the one who was bringing them about. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that every moment of your life, not just the big events, but everyday events, every hour, every minute, every second, is ordained by a sovereign God? He purposes them. Not one molecule moves without a sovereign God commanding it and saying, move. We pray because God is sovereign. We sing because God is sovereign. We trust because God is sovereign. He is in control, not me, not you. Friend, you haven't been dealt a bad hand by karma or some other mystical cosmic source, but you have been given precisely what the Lord saw fit. Your life has turned out because God wanted your life to be this way. This is a restfulness in this truth that God is in control. Though the world falls, Jesus is still on his throne. And this is why Jesus, in this conversation of the second coming of Christ, reminds his disciples to guard against complacency. This destruction, the horrors that we see in these verses, is meant to awaken us from our drunken stupors. Meant to kind of shake us out of our sleep. And to say that reality is coming upon us if we are not prepared. And so Jesus, in verses 25 through verse 38, shifts to the signs of the times, if you will. And the question gets asked by pastors and religious leaders all the time, are we living in the end times? Are, 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 is this the end time? Yes. And if I was pastoring in 71 AD, and you came to me and said, Pastor, are we living in the end times? I would say yes. If you came to me in 1041 and said, Pastor, are we living in the end times? I would say yes. 
We've been living in the end time since Jesus ascended into heaven. The Bible makes this emphatically clear. This world has been under judgment. But remember that, G- that God is long-suffering, wishing that no one would perish. So praise God, He has been slow in coming. Because after all, maybe you, or maybe me, would never have been saved. But by His grace, He has been now notice here in this section, we're going to move through this quite clearly. I hope just to whet your appetite about end times stuff and not you know, bog us down in all this. I think there is one overarching guarding principle. The main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. And we would do well when we think about eschatology, end time theology, that we stick with the main thing. And what is the main thing? Jesus is coming again. Amen. That's the main thing. The main thing is that Jesus is coming visibly and bodily as we affirmed in our statement of faith. He is coming again. That there is not one event that is preventing Jesus from coming again. Not one thing preventing Jesus from coming and gathering His church. And Jesus here says, listen now, there's going to be some pretty wild things that are going to start happening. But don't lose it. Don't, don't, don't freak out. Notice here that there will be so much anguish at the signs that accompany the end and the return of Christ that people will be fainting with fear and foreboding at what's coming in the world. You don't even know what the word foreboding means and you're like, ah, it's going to be scary. They're going to be overwhelmed, overcome. Their bodies are going to literally just shrivel up at what they're seeing Notice what he says, verse 26, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Jesus just paints this picture of God grabbing the the cosmos, the, the universe, and just shaking it. Things are just going all out of order. What's happening here? Remember that when God created the world, he created the world. He took chaos and he brought order. And what we see at the second coming of Christ is a releasing of that order and back to chaos. Everything is out of balance. Everything is thrown into chaotic form. The sun, the moon, the stars, the earth, everything begins to crumble. What is he doing? He is taking his creation and decreating it. The creation is crumbling and God is uncreating it. At creation, he brought order and and reigned in the sea. But now there's a great reversal. This world is being destroyed in preparation for a new world to come. And notice the disciples are not to be given to fear, running around yelling, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. The sky is literally falling. No, 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 that's what Jesus says. Like, what do you mean the sky isn't falling? The sky is literally falling, Christian. What? No, the Christian is steady and steadfast. Oh, my God is behind all these things. He is bringing his world to an end. Jesus is quickly coming. Notice here, he says, straighten up, raise your heads. Verse 28, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Let me just blow your little theology about the end times. Christians are present at the second coming of Christ and the world. 
Read in that how you want. But all this tribulation and distress, all this chaos, Christians are present. They are visibly seeing these things. And they are told to straighten up and to lift their heads because why? Because your redemption is drawing near. Jesus is coming, and there's a great celebration that accompanies that when he comes again to usher in his new kingdom. The return of Christ is not an event unrelated to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, but it is wrapped up in the gospel message. See, we often divorce the end from the beginning. No, it's one story. And we're just in the middle of that story. The story hasn't ended yet. As one commentator writes, the grand finale of the gospel preached by Jesus is that there is a sure hope for the future. It is grounded not in history or logic or institution, but in the word of Jesus. It is the asservation that in those days humanity will no longer usurp history, but relinquish it to its Lord and Maker who will return in glory and justice to condemn evil, end suffering, and gather his own to himself. Brothers and sisters, the return of Christ is the grand finale of the gospel. It's the end. It's the bow that ties it all together. As Jesus comes and he destroys his enemies and he establishes his eternal kingdom and the heaven and earth are made new. And so Jesus tells a parable. And we don't have time to go into all the details. It's, it's pretty straightforward. The ter- parable, this lesson on the fig tree. Here it is. You know it. You know it when you, when you go out to your orange groves and you see the, the buds on there. You know what's happening. We know the seasons are changing. You know when you see the, the buds begin to form on trees. You know that the season, and you can interpret, you can see that, and you could say, oh, this is the time of year for these things to happen. You're not surprised by them. And Jesus says, so also, the signs will be so unmistakable that even the simple-minded will be able to see and interpret. Let me, let me just sort of put that down a little bit lower on the shelf for you. If you need maps and charts to figure out the end times, you're doing it wrong. Jesus says this is so simple that even a little kid could figure it out. Trust me, he says, <laughs> when that day comes, it will be unmistakable. No one will be scratching their head saying, is this it? Yeah, I think you'll figure it out when the moon disappears. You'll be like, well, I think that's it. Or the sun begins to go out of orbit. Or things begin to crumble. But notice here, in the midst of all of this wonderful and beautiful cataclysmic power and and grace and, and mercy, we are not to run fearful, but we are to be watchful. You see, the end times ought to be a conversation that makes us sober and watchful. And Jesus concludes with this warning. Watch yourselves and stay awake. Now in the other gospel accounts, Jesus does similar things. He tells parables uh, that, that helps to explain these texts. But the overarching idea is that we are to watch. Why? Because in the midst of judgment, God's people need to be watchful lest they themselves too fall into judgment. Think that, oh, this isn't for me. Oh, I don't need to worry about that. 
Oh, we must guard ourselves. Notice the temptation that comes, verse 34. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day, that is the day of judgment, the day of the second coming of Christ, come upon you like a, like a trap. Isn't it a picture here? It's a, it's a surprise. Wow, I didn't expect that. Notice the temptations. Dissipation. Dissipation is essentially a hangover. When you have dissipation, you have a hangover from your partying from the previous night. Why were they partying? Because Jesus has been delayed. Parents were away on vacations and the kids had the run of the place. Right? They didn't know the parents were on their way home. They didn't, they didn't have modern technology where you can track where your parents are on their phones. Right? Yeah, that ability. I know where mom's at. I know where dad's at. I know when they're pulling down the driveway. Right? But all of a sudden they show up. Oh my goodness. Ha, we turned our phones off. Surprise. Jesus warns us as a church, what will he find us doing when he comes again? What, what will we be given ourselves? Will we be drunk? Just imagine how terrible that would be. Just wasted, just totally smashed. And Jesus busts out through the eastern sky. What are you going to do then, friend? You know, you're not going to be able to drink enough coffee to get yourself sobered up in time. It's over. End of story. End of the line. Or notice here, burdened by the cares of this life. Friend, isn't that so true of maybe our lives? Skipping a long life without a care in the world, and then all of a sudden it came upon us like a trap. Suddenly, this is why Jesus will go on to say that this is going to happen to everybody. There's not going to be a rock you can hide under, an island that you can go and you won't be affected by it. No, he says, verse 30, 36, but stay awake at all times. This doesn't literally mean stay awake like you don't go to bed. No, no. He, he means your soul better be awake. You better be watchful. There's no vacations. Satan doesn't take a vacation. Your soul care shouldn't take a vacation. But have the strength through prayer, he says, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and stand before the Son of Man. Oh, brothers and sisters, may he find us standing on that day, not cowering in fear. Here is the truth. Our lives should be so marked by and with our hearts set expectantly on the reality that Jesus will return at any moment. Our life should be marked by that reality. He could come right now, or this afternoon, or this evening, or tomorrow. There's no preparation plans. There's nothing we can do. He could come as one author put it, no one will be found accidentally faithful on that day. No one will be. No one will be accidentally faithful on that day. You will either purpose it now, or you will fail. Stand firm by being careful how you live, 
by being careful over your soul, being deliberate in what you give yourself to, and being prayerful about your affections. Pastor Mike McKinley puts this so helpfully for us, but perhaps the greatest threat to our spiritual well-being is not the threat of widespread anti-Christian violence or personal persecution, but the daily temptations and distractions that can easily take root once we stop living in light of Christ's imminent return in glory. He goes on to say, the temptation as we wait for the final day is to begin to live as if Jesus is not actually coming back, to settle in there, to make it this life our ultimate home, and to begin to live for it alone. Friends, that's why we sing songs about this home that we're going to. We do that because we want to guard ourselves from thinking that this is our home. Something you may not have noticed, even in our own cemetery here in Avon Park. Let me encourage you the next time you're driving down 27 in town, just to pay attention to something. Perhaps you know this already, but the next time you drive by, I want you to notice something about that cemetery and many others like them. That cemetery faces the east. It does not face the north or the south, or the west. Each of those that are laid in the tombs in that cemetery, their bodies are laid facing the east. Why? Because when Jesus comes, He's coming from the east, and they want to be standing, waiting for Him. That's the reality of what Jesus is saying here. Do we die in faith? Or die faithless. Brothers and sisters, the Lord is coming again. And we must not grow weary, but continue to entrust ourselves to Him. Jonathan Edwards helpfully writes this truth. The mark of faithfulness is watchfulness. Not foretelling the future, but obedience in the present. How do you prepare for that future? By you being faithful today. By you being watchful over your soul. By you giving yourself to prayer and through gospel proclamation, calling others and warning others, pleading with others that they too might be saved. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come before you and ask that our focus would not be on trying to predict the Lord's return that we would not be caught up in eschatological fervor, but patiently, watchfully, and expectantly await for our Lord's return. Jesus, we have one simple prayer to utter before you today. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.